0: Song 772, we've been asked if we'd mark that, and we're certainly happy to do that and look forward to the opportunity at any occasion to sing songs of praise unto God, and we'll use that one later in the service, even this very afternoon. As mentioned always, of course, we're thankful for the presence of each and every one, our membership, our visitors alike. We hope each of us, of course, are drawn closer to the things of God by being here, and I hope that We're all hungry for those things that are taught in the Word of God. Aren't we taught in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I hope you'll be turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we'll devote our attention tonight to that interesting Old Testament chapter. In fact, we continue a series of studies on the book of Ecclesiastes this evening. You may notice on this slide is an extremely brief attempt on my part to remind you of some of the earlier uh, sermons, the the other lessons we've considered in the series. Starting from chapter 1, we've now arrived through the completion of chapter 4, and we've looked at a number of things. First, is life worth living? This book, among all the books of the Bible, seems to address that question more directly than the others. Solomon wrestled with it. Is life worth living? The book began by asserting in the second verse of the opening chapter, all is vanity, vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. And he began to highlight monotony and a number of things that seemingly suggest the answer to be no. But we've already learned in that discussion that there is more to be noted than just this. In fact, that monotony, as as we learned in chapter 3, is really anchored in such a way that it gives your life and mine something to which it can always remain firmly affixed. God has put in place these ongoing, continuing matters, and you and I can fit our life in service to Him into those realities. For that reason, you'll notice on the middle of the slide, we come this evening, after having finished that fourth chapter Solomon observed a number of oppressions and vanities that will continue in this chapter, but in places we might not have expected. As we take up the, fourth, the fifth chapter this evening, let's turn our slide to that place and begin our study like this. I met you just a moment ago that perhaps Solomon witnessed some vanities in places that he did not anticipate. Did you note the title already? Vanities in Divine Service? How could there be vanity among those who've gathered to worship God? It would seem in chapter number 4, that which we studied on our last occasion, Solomon again had observed vanity sometimes in politics. I believe we'd still claim that that in many cases is the case. But he also saw vanity in some other regions and walks of life. He continues that appreciation. The opening verses will take us into the realm of divine service. Beginning in verse number 1, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter, it, to utter anything before the Lord, or before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools' pay that thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, Neither say before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also divers vanities, but fear thou God. Some of these thoughts on this slide will lead us through a number of the appreciations of this. But let me preface it by saying, in what Solomon seems to describe here, it's as if, upon completing those observations of chapter 4, he now proceeds to make observation in new places, and he actually went to the place where people had gathered in the attempted service of God. He went to a church building, you and I would say. In that Old Testament era, it was a tabernacle. As he went, Maybe he expected there to find no vanity. Maybe he expected to find nothing that would defer or deter service to God, but he was mistaken. He saw some things and witnessed some things that also involved vanity. Solomon, what did you see? Verse 1, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. You and I might phrase that like this, watch your step. Have you ever had parents or maybe others individuals who were greatly in wisdom, and they urged you to watch or stay up? They urged you to proceed with caution in light of some activity in which you were making plans. Solomon now gave admonition: Keep thy foot. Where, when you go to the house of God, maybe you and I would anticipate again there wouldn't be any great vanity appearing at this place. But Solomon said, Keep your foot. Watch your step, because verse number 1 says, "...be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools." It would appear that Solomon saw a lot of people gathering with those who offered worship and praise to God, but they were more interested in sacrifice and hearing what God had to say to them. Is that a danger still today? Is that a matter that you and I should be concerned about? Oh, I'm there. I've come to the services all right." And although Bible was preached and matters of the Word of God were presented, my mind was elsewhere. I really wasn't listening very well. And so I leave not greatly better than when I came. Solomon said, I saw this. Keep your foot, he affirmed. Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. And please note the way the verse ends for they consider not that they do evil. Did you notice? Here were individuals that came to to, to the worship. They gathered, and yet they were guilty of evil for gathering. We live in an age and in a time when, by and large, there are those who appreciate or seem to feel as if, as long as you have a degree of earnestness and sincerity and honesty about you, simply go and do whatever you feel as if you can. May you and I never feel as if that makes acceptable worship. Here were individuals. They were coming to the house of God, and yet Solomon said they're guilty of evil for coming. They have arrived, and they're not willing to listen. They're not interested in hearing. They only want to apparently give this apparent sacrifice of fools. You and I today should appreciate a grand lesson in that thought, shouldn't we? God's a spirit. And they that worship Him must. He did not say should, might, or may. He said must worship Him in spirit and in truth, John four twenty four. As Solomon witnessed this, notice it involved a vanity. And as you'll notice on that slide, this is by no means the only time in the Old Testament when matters like this were troubling the people of God. In Isaiah chapter 1, God rather directly through the prophet Isaiah told the people, don't you come to services and do this anymore. I'm paraphrasing obviously part of chapter 1. But he says, your oblations, I hate them. They were offering sacrifice, but God hated what they were doing. May I suggest to each of us, worship is keenly interesting to God and we need to keep our foot to make sure that when we assemble, we do so in the right attitude and in the right desire to hear the things of God, implement them in our heart, and live in a way that honors and pleases Him. For that reason, you might note this. 1 Samuel 15, is a powerful reminder that was an occasion when in fact King Saul found himself in which Samuel told him this, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. You might recall that Saul had this notion, this idea, of keeping some of the animals and things that he was supposed to destroy of the Amalekites. Maybe he thought it was a good idea. I'll offer sacrifice to God. God said, destroy it. You don't try to come up with a better idea than God. To obey is better than sacrifice. That principle is still powerful, isn't it? Let's read on, though. What about verses 2 and following? Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. You'll note on the slide, something else that Solomon witnessed... He observed hastiness in the things that some of those were saying who gathered at this tabernacle. What does it mean to be hasty? It appears from the verses that following context, at least two things are to be noted. First, there were some who uttered things without giving much thought to it. They really weren't intending to be faithful to what they said. They'd make a vow to God, but really it wasn't on their heart. Maybe they said it to impress those who heard the scribes, the others that were in appearance. Maybe they said it just so that somebody nearby who wasn't an official would be impressed with their piety. At any rate, Solomon says, this isn't good. Be not rash with thy mouth. Isn't it true that's still one of the dangers that can trouble any of us so easily? We talk before we think. We talk before we have thought things through and maybe we make assertions or we give our word in light of something that later we end up having to take back because we're not able to fulfill it. In this instance, as we'll see in just a moment, that was taking place among some of these individuals who had assembled. Could I invite you to note these verses? One of the things that certainly is right in terms of our lesson even to this morning but it's an ongoing truth in the Word of God, isn't it? When we approach God in prayer, we're speaking to Him. Must we be mindful of this? Absolutely. May we never ever pray in such a way it's just words that emanate from our lips without really the thought in our heart because the New Testament teaches us that kind of prayer is not going to go anywhere. We've got to believe what we pray, James 1 verses 5 through 7. Let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord. If he doesn't have faith, that it'll be answered. Here Solomon observed some who were making statements of prayer, but they were hasty, rash. They apparently were somewhat unbelieving. Again, it doesn't really matter the reasons why they said such things. That wasn't good. May you and I be careful. May we never pray just to impress somebody else. Who is our audience in prayer? It's the God of heaven. We're praying to Him. And we want to pray in a way that's according to His will, James 4 verse 2. We want to pray in such a way that our thoughts and our prayers and our supplications and our desires encircle the very throne of heaven, Revelation 5 verse 8, and brings about, of course, the great hearing of God. For that reason, look at this text in Ecclesiastes 5 again, verse number 2. Be not rash with thy mouth. That's a commandment. May you and I observe the great intrigue that follows it. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. May I suggest that when any of us pray, never think that you're simply praying to someone who is your equal. God is great and we are not. He is infinite and we are not. He is omnipotent and we are not. We shouldn't be addressing Him like an old friend, like an old buddy. He is far greater than that. Isn't it interesting how that Jesus began His prayer? Here was the very Son of God Himself, a member of the Godhead, and yet He could say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. I know that there are those in our world today who often will encourage by way of books and otherwise, in your prayer life, speak to God like a friend. I don't believe that's right. In fact, I would assert in light of verses like this, we ought to be mighty cautious of this. God is not on our level. Doesn't Isaiah 55 tell us? He is in heaven and He is far greater than we. It is with that in mind, let's close this slide like this. We have a couple of instances in the New Testament at least when there were individuals who loved to make long prayers, but they weren't doing it to petition God. They did it so people could hear how fine and eloquent they were. Gentlemen, when we lead prayers in public, or even when we pray, any of us in private, May the thoughts of that prayer emanate from our heart. We aren't simply talking so some other human being can hear us and be impressed with our vocabulary and our language. That's not the purpose of prayer. In Luke chapter 20, verse number 47, a very interesting comment is made where there there were some who prayed long prayers, but the inspired Holy Spirit noted it was for a pretense. They were only saying all these things just so everybody else could be impressed with how godly they were. That is not the idea behind our prayers. Solomon saw this and it bothered him. May it always be something that rests upon our heart as well. But with that in mind, let's make another application, specifically in the language of verse 4. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Now, we understand, especially in our studies in the Sunday morning Bible class, that much is said, especially in the book of Numbers, about that circumstance in which an individual might make a vow to God. Now, it is true in light of our study of those things, God didn't command that the vow to be made. But rather, if a person chose by willful volition to make that vow, you needed to be true to it. If you made a vow to God that you were going to engage in a certain activity or you were going to make a certain sacrifice, then you didn't need to back out in it. You needed to be true and follow through with what you promised. It would appear Solomon saw some people who had made a vow, but then perhaps offered some excuse, well, I can't do it now. The words of the Holy Spirit still defer not to pay it. When you and I make an assertion, a promise to God, it's a serious thing. And when we give our word that we shall do something, I'd like to suggest that as that verse closes, I'm sorry, the next verse, Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. In that day, when again the vows were optional, God through the Holy Spirit asserted, You'd be better off to not vow than to make a vow and then not pay it. Now, I realize that this echoes the sentiment of Numbers 30, verse number 2. When on that occasion, Moses told the people very clearly this, When you give your word in light of service to God, make absolutely sure that you keep it. I'd like to remind all of us that we have given our word to Him. Do you recall back in the scene of your recollection, your memory... The day you obeyed the gospel, there was a preacher who said something like this to you. Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And you said yes. Or you said I do. Or you said something along that line. At that moment, you made a promise to be faithful to Him. You promised that in fact you believe with all of your heart that that Jesus is the Son of God and that you were going to attend to live faithfully through life. We have all given our word in that regard and in that light. In this principle, may I suggest, we make certain that we keep that with all the earnestness within us. Defer not to pay it. With that said, let's close that slide like this. I couldn't help but at least invite each of us to recollect Jesus had something to say about this Himself. In Matthew 15, Beginning in verse number 7 of that chapter, you and I might ask today one more time, would it be possible to witness vanity among those who have gathered in worship and in service to God? Jesus said the answer is yes. You recall how He phrased it. It went something like this, This people draweth nigh to me with their lips, and honoreth me with their heart, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus, remember, even in that stage in the book of Matthew, highlighted individuals then, they may have assembled, but He said if they substitute their own thinking, their own doctrines, their own speculations in place of the Word of God, that worship is vain. That means it's empty, it's futile. Could there be vanity and divine service today? Absolutely. At that point, let's then move into the next section of this fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, because at this point, notice where else Solomon witnessed vanity. It takes us to verse eight. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he is higher than the highest. Reg- for he that is higher than the highest regardeth and there be higher than they." Now that verse is a rather brief and short presentation, but I'd like to summarize, if I may, a thing or two concerning it, because it seems to speak volumes about the nature of things and governments. Where did Solomon now witness vanity? If thou seest the oppression of the poor and the violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province. He has seen it, in this case, in civil authorities. Now you and I might be quick to say, but Solomon, you're king. Couldn't you force them to stop being vain? Think about the vastness of Solomon's empire. Even if he could give orders and if he could even place punishments in regard to things, could he make absolutely sure that every judge and every official and every civil authority in all the stretches of the empire, would behave without vanity and would behave without oppression. I'd submit, in all likelihood, that wouldn't be possible. Did you notice what else he said? Marvel not at the matter. Don't be surprised that this occurs. Today, we shouldn't be surprised that the government doesn't do everything that you and I would appreciate that it should in the light of biblical revelation. And even if there were a faithful Christian as president, even if there were a whole host of faithful Christians serving in the House of Representatives in the Senate, we still shouldn't marvel or be astonished or surprised if there were vanities and oppressions occurring in various ways in various places in the authorities of the government. The government's too vast and too large and every single individual would be subject to temptation to bribery, to oppression, and various things, and we'd never be able to be sure that every single person behaved in a proper and righteous way. Solomon said, don't be alarmed if the authorities don't always behave in a way that pleases God. You and I know in every empire, basically, it has been that way. Perhaps one more thing as the verse closes. May you and I never forget "...that he that is higher than the highest regardeth." God is watching, and every one of them will have to give an answer to God for what they do, what they uphold, and the decisions they make. All of it's going to be noted by the one who is higher than they and the one who's regarding it. There's a sense in which I would wish every politician could at least think about the latter part of that verse. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. Now it's true, the human family may never know all the intricacies and the things that they do, but God knows. And He is going to bring it to bear in judgment if it's not forgiven. At that point, let's close that slide by noting that there have been a number of additional places in the Word of God where oppression and authorities was highlighted. We could mention the book of Zephaniah, the book of Micah, the book of Deuteronomy. And in each of those instances... God was aware of it, and He's still aware of it today. The last part of the chapter is going to be a practical exposition for you and me regarding a subject of intense practical interest, riches, wealth, money. It is really remarkable on some occasions how often the Bible makes note of this, but in a sense, maybe we shouldn't be surprised For after all, how much more practical can it be than things like currency and wealth and riches and money? Solomon, remember, he had a lot of money. He had a lot of riches. And even though his heart, it would seem, was in fact directed properly, he witnessed in some others that it wasn't always that way. Let's see what he saw. I trust that we'll be able to learn much about it. Beginning in verse number 9, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much." But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil." That in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he, shall, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. I've tried to develop this point as follows. There are several myths. That is to say, there are several perceptions that many people in our world have concerning riches, and those perceptions are wrong. Let's look at them one by one. Solomon dispels all of them in the span of a few verses. The first one is this one. How often have you perhaps heard someone operate under the assumption that, well, if I only had some more money, I'd be satisfied. I promise you, not because it's my wisdom, but because it's what the Bible says. He that loves silver will never be satisfied with silver. He that loves abundance will never be satisfied with plenty in regard to that abundance. Riches will not satisfy you. It never has and it never will. The reason is this. God has made the human being in such a way there is a void inside him or her and riches cannot fill that void. The only thing that can fill it is a connection to the one's maker, a connection to the one that made you, a connection. He and He alone has the means whereby that void can be filled to the overflow and provide purpose and meaning to life. The language of verse 10 still reads like this He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. You could substitute gold, rubies, emeralds, anything's going to be the same principle. Notice how that dispels that study, that myth then. Many operate under the illusion, if only I had more money, I'd be satisfied and happy. It just isn't so. Look at this next one. There are some who say, if only I had a little bit more money, I'd be able to live at ease. I wouldn't have to work so hard, and I'd have fewer obligations. That's not true either. Did you know how he said it? Verse number 11, When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? When you acquire more, there's far more obligation to maintain it, sustain it, and upkeep it. And not only that, the more you have... There's a lot more taxes and there's a lot more other maintenance costs and there's a whole lot more on the mind of others who would like to get at them one way or the other. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. There's a lot more responsibility keeping up the riches, making sure you look over it and be a good steward of it. In that sense, one has to be mindful. If you have a lot you may suddenly have a whole lot greater task simply trying to keep up with it. How do I invest it? How do I make sure that those I delegate it to are using it wisely? How do I make sure they're not embezzling and stealing from me? You may have a whole lot more work to do just trying to maintain all the money. Solomon told us this. Let's add another thing to it, and it's this one. If only I had a little more money, I'd sure have peace of mind. I'd be able to sleep well at night. Are you sure? The stories told about Mr. Rockefeller. Maybe you know about him. He was the richest man in America back about the turn of the 1900s. He had a vast railroad empire as well as a number of other businesses. He was a multi-billionaire back in that day. The man was miserable. He was absolutely miserable. His health was deteriorating fast. He finally learned this interesting lesson. If I'll give my money away, instead of trying to look after it myself, and that's what he did. His health improved. He lived to be 98 years old. I'd suggest to you he learned something about peace of mind. It didn't come with money. Now, he was blessed to have a lot of it. But when he learned that peace of mind wasn't in the money, it made a great difference in his health and a great difference in the other walks of his life. May I suggest these myths that the world tries to sell us, they're not true. And the Bible would urge us. Now, truly, we're thankful for the money God allows us to have. And we do need a certain amount of it to take care of the obligations of life. But may we never live just to accumulate more money. And may we never live just so we can have more possessions. For again, those who love silver will never be satisfied with silver. At that point, let's close that slide and note a great principle that should help us even as we proceed to the latter part of the chapter. All that money and that wealth that we might have an interest in considering, who does it belong to? Well, Solomon noted, "Doesn't it belong to God? It is His." In Psalm twenty-four, one, as well as in Matthew six thirty-four, we are given this powerful principle restated in these dramatically powerful ways. With that said, let's continue with these thoughts because there's one more thing you and I might note: one last myth. Have you ever heard someone make the statement, if only I had more money, I would enjoy security. I wouldn't live day to day in a constant fearfulness of losing things. Well, may I suggest Solomon addressed that in this paragraph we just read. As far as security goes, did you note know one thing in his description? Verse number 13, there is a sore evil which I have seen. You might take note with me, Solomon wasn't just theorizing this. He said, I've seen it. I've witnessed it. Namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. So these individuals that accumulate money and accumulate riches, but they do so to their hurt and what's more, those riches perish by evil travail. Now, I know that each one of us have maybe witnessed something like this. A person works hard for decades, laying up and looking for retirement. And two months later, he has a heart attack. He's dead now. And all of that money that he worked for is now left to somebody. And what does it say often happens to it? Verse 14, it perishes. This person who now inherits it or by some other means acquires it, that money that others had worked for, he or she misuses it, squanders it, wastes it. And not only that, verse number 15 says, As he came forth from his mother's womb, nakedly returned. Quite often, doesn't this happen? Someone inherits or by some means acquires a vast sum of money. Maybe it's from their grandparents. Maybe it's from some other source. And suddenly this person begins to buy and buy. And in a short amount of time, hundreds of thousands of dollars are gone. The person had nothing a few months ago. And now he still has nothing because he's wasted all that money. Solomon said, I've seen this. And it's another vanity. It's a tragedy. The language he uses is this. Verse 15, as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. Again, I know we have each at least appreciated events like that occurring. Verse 16 says, this is a sore evil. At this point, let's return to our slide and turn to things more positive now. The closing aspects of this chapter. Solomon has witnessed some more vanity in divine service, in authorities, and even in, re- in relation to some elements and riches. But verses 18 to 20 close the chapter like this. "'Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink, and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion.' every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. I've tried to summarize that like this. Maybe you and I can fall into traps like this, or maybe you've known someone who does. They're always planning. They're making plans for 30 years from now, 20 years from now, 10 years from now. And there ain't anything wrong with making appropriate plans. But may I suggest, in light of verses like this, may we simply not only live for the future. Did you hear what Solomon said? It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all His labor. May you and I enjoy life today. Now those plans coming for the future, you and I don't know what the future holds. We may not live to appreciate that. As we live only for the future, may I suggest, we may well miss a lot of the blessings of the the day today. Solomon here highlighted for us, Verse number 19, God gives us riches and wealth, and all of us have much wealth in many ways. May we be thankful for it today. May we, may we honor God with it today. May we understand the blessing it is for the day today, and not only try to use it for what may well be in the distant future. One last thing on that slide. Contentment seems to be a message that bubbles to the surface of a chapter like this one. Are you content? Am I? We're told we should be. Philippians 4.11 still reminds us in such powerful words written by a man who himself was in prison and yet he could say, Not that I speak in respect of want. For one thing I've learned, to be content with such things as I have. I hope each of us will appreciate and be thankful for our food and the other things we do enjoy. And it's fine to wish to acquire, of course, but in a proper way. We aren't living for the money. We're living to be good stewards of that which God has given us. I hope as we close this fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes this evening, we can do so perhaps by highlighting one following set of observations. It has to do with the riches that we each have. As far as the Bible reveals it, there's only three sources for the monies that you and I may have. We can work for it, we can steal it, or we could acquire it by inheritance. We know the middle one's wrong, Ephesians 4.28. Most of us have been brought up to appreciate the first one. Work, labor, so that you and I, honestly receive that which we have by virtue of our invested labor. And the Bible encourages us to to appreciate the value in that as He allows us to work for that obtaining. But as we obtain it, may we realize that let's not work all of our life away. Let's enjoy what we are in a position to appreciate by virtue of those blessings and gifts we do have that kind of lesson will be a very meaningful one for us. And it closes our lesson then in that way. More vanities is what Solomon has brought to our teaching. Some in divine service, some in the authorities, some even in regard to riches. But may you and I be hearty in the aspect of appreciating lessons from Ecclesiastes 5. I would suggest, though it's not the subject of tonight's lesson, Ecclesiastes 6, we'll continue this discussion with some more vanities and some more observations about life, about our perspective on it. And we'll look forward to considering that on our next occasion. Tonight, maybe there's someone in the audience whose viewpoint on certain things in life has not been in keeping with the book of Ecclesiastes or even other Bible books. Don't you realize that these books are here for our learning? They're here for our wisdom. They're here for our instruction. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in maybe helping you rededicate your life to Jesus Christ, we'd be honored to do that. As we do that, of course, we would anticipate the need for you, if it's been a public sin, for you to make confession and repentance of it. And we'll be honored to pray to God on your behalf. If you've never become a Christian, don't you realize the greatest life by far to live on this, on this planet is a Christian life? Because not only do we have abundant life here, we have the only life hereafter. And I know that in your examination of your hearted life, you would want to seriously consider that. If tonight one of the elders, myself, could study with you or be of help to you, we'd be happy to do that. This very night, this song of encouragement, though, has been selected, and this is an opportune time. We would encourage you, even at this moment, to come if we can help you and do it at, the, at once while together we stand and sing.